Matthew chapter 6. We've been talking about prayer, and not just prayer, but prevailing prayer, because the Bible tells us in a number of places, but it tells us in James chapter 5 that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. So God's idea of prayer, and that's the one that counts, God's idea of prayer that he reveals to us through his word is that our prayers ought to get answered. It ought to be rare when our prayers are not answered. And unfortunately, too many times our experience is the other way around. And what happens is we learn to settle for that. And so when we do that, we lower our expectation and we just kind of, you know, pray, well, I don't know if this is going to get answered or not, but we're going to pray because we need to. We're going to pray because we got to do something and, you know... Was it Pastor Michael and I think we're talking about earlier today? We kind of settle into this attitude that which we may not admit. We joke about it, you know. Is well, as it come to that, we got to pray. We've run out of every other thing, everything else to do. So when everything else runs out, let's pray. And what that tells us, whether we say that or not, that's so often our inner attitude. And what we're really revealing by that is what we really believe and what we really expect. And so many times, that's not much. And as a result, because we don't expect much, we don't ask much. And the Bible says, if you don't ask much, you won't get much. He says, you have not because you ask not. So we've been looking at prayer through scriptures and what God says about prayer and what God wants us to know about prayer because God's encouraging us and challenging us because prayer is his idea. It's not our idea. Prayer is not where we go talk God into something that he really doesn't want to do and we've got to just get him on a good day or in a good mood and you know, kind of bother him long enough and he'll do what we ask him to do because he just wants to get rid of us. And that's not what the Bible says prayer is at all. Actually, it's the other way around. God has to bother us to pray. He's got to pester us. You know, he's got to convince us to come and ask him. And it was last year about this time, I was up in the middle of the night praying about a situation and really just seeking God's wisdom about a situation. And I had God speak to me so clearly. He said, son, my word tells you over and over again to ask me. Why would I tell you to ask me if I don't want to give you what you're asking? And it was like that was, that was, it's so simple and so profound, but it was like a ray of light coming out of heaven. It just, it just opened me up in the inside of course. Why would God tell us to come and ask if he hasn't already decided to give it to us? Well, we've all experienced asking for something we didn't get. And the problem is when that happens, it's very easy to settle back and say, well, I guess I was wrong. I guess, you know, I guess God's word doesn't quite mean what it says. We have to make some kind of adjustment so that we can reconcile the fact that our experience doesn't line up with what God's word says. And one of the things we need to learn of is never to do that. Never to adjust God's word to line up with our experiences. And sometimes there are cases where we don't know the answer, but the answer is never that God's word doesn't mean what it says. Because once we start adjusting God's word, we have no framework left to believe. And we are at, now we become our own God, tailoring, God's word, tailoring the word of God to what our understanding is. Understand this, we still look through a glass dimly. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says we look through a glass dimly. I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how the gifts of the Spirit may operate in your life. I don't care the visions and dreams and the miracles that you've seen. We still see, as long as we're in this flesh and we're, 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 we're governed by this mind so much, we still see spiritual things through a glass 
dimly. And praise God for what we do see, but we don't have full understanding. We don't have full knowledge. That's why God gives us His Spirit, and that's why God gives us His Word. And we may talk more about that on Sunday. So we're looking at God's Word and what God says about, but there are certain principles that the Bible lays down. They're not rules. They're not laws. There are principles by which God's... the the, the operation of prayer functions. And the first thing, and they're all kind of related. The first thing we looked at is that, is that we must believe when we pray that God's answered that prayer. And, and, and the principles of the kingdom of God work in many cases the reverse of what our training is in this life. In this world, we're trained to believe something once we see that it's there. When our senses verify that something's true, then we're willing to step out and say, well, yes, that's so. But the kingdom of God operates the other way around. And we looked in Romans chapter 4 where the apostle Paul says that, that, uh, a belie- that Abraham believed and therefore he received. You've got to believe before you receive because that's how you receive things from the kingdom of God into this, into this realm. And then we spend several weeks looking at another principle of prayer, which they're all kind of related again, is we need to be specific when we pray. And we saw that the reason we're so general when we pray is we're kind of give God a big target to hit. Why do we have to give him a big target to hit? Because we're not confident that he can hit a small, a specific target. And, and, but that's a sign of our lack of faith. So we need to learn to be very specific. We talked about perseverance in prayer and why perseverance in prayer is important. And we're talking most, more, mostly about, uh, we've talked about different types of prayer, the prayer of faith, we've talked about the prayer of consecration, but we're talking here really about a prayer of intercession, where we're praying for God to become involved in a situation in someone else's life, and the highest type of that, the most important type of that, is praying for someone else's salvation for God to open their eyes. And we've seen why perseverance is necessary because when it involves someone else's will, when it involves factors in someone else's life, a prayer of faith is where I'm taking a promise of God and I'm asking God to, to honor that promise in my life. But when I'm praying for a loved one, when I'm praying for someone that's, that's lost and someone that needs to know Christ, their will is involved. And we've looked at scriptures and not only is their will involved, there's a spiritual warfare going on. And we've looked at scriptures that showed that when Daniel prayed that, 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 and, the, and the angel show, Gabriel showed up, he talked about what he had to go through to bring the answer because there's a spiritual realm around this earth that's, that, that is controlled by the God of this earth and the principle and powers and rulers in heavenly places. So there's spiritual forces at work that we can't see with our natural eyes. And we looked, when we finished pretty much that discussion, we looked at that God has made provision for that because there's a praying in the Spirit allows us to communicate with God spirit to spirit so that our understanding, our mind is not involved. And, and, and there's so many things that we don't understand. And we saw in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where he said, when you don't know the what to pray for, that the Spirit is in you interceding, taking hold together with you against that situation. So that's what we've been looking at. And we're going to look now at a new principle. They're, again, again, they're all related. So Matthew chapter 6, I want to read through here. And then I want to go back and talk about just really one term in here, but it's the one that he keeps emphasizing. We're going to pick up in, um, in verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they already have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in in the secret place. And your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. That's people that have no covenant relationship with God. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father, this is talking to His disciples now, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed or sacred be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts or trespasses as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. For if you forgive men, still part of the same discussion of prayer, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In the verses, 11 verses that I just read, there's one term that appears six times. And it's significant because Jesus is talking to his disciples about prayer. And that term that appears six times is the term Father. Now when Jesus uses a term six times in 11 verses, and of course we know Jesus didn't speak in verses. But in our Bible, this is 11 verses. And this word Father appears six times. He's emphasizing something. And it's so easy to skip over this and read. In fact, you know, many of you were named, we all, many of us were raised in church and we called this prayer the Our Father. And it's become a term that we use about God's Our Father. But do we really think about what that means? Because to the disciples, to the Jews of his age, of that age, this was a term that had to ring in their ears because in the old covenant, God was not referred to as a father. God was referred to as Adonai Lord. God was referred to as El Shaddai, the Almighty God. God was referred to as the God of a covenant. God had, had many different names, but none of them were father. They all represented something about some characteristic about God, something about His office, something about His power, something about things He would do for us. They talked about characteristics and attributes of God, but they didn't talk about His heart. Father is on a totally different realm. And I've become convinced, at least I'm going to share from my experience, what I'm going to share with you tonight has begun to, has changing my prayer life. Because so often when we pray, we're praying, we're praying prayers we know to pray. We're praying out of our heart. But do we have a confidence? I don't mean a mental confidence. Do we have a heart confidence? Because that's what Jesus talks about when he talks about in Mark 11, 23 and 24. 
24 especially, he said, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Verse 23 says, if you not doubt in your heart, James chapter 1 says that if you ask, God will answer you, but you must not doubt in your heart, but you must believe. It's all talking about the heart, not the head. And so often, my experience and my experience in talking with people, my experience is that people are believing out of their head and not out of their heart. And I believe one of the the, the keys to faith out of the heart is knowing who it is we're talking to. And Jesus is trying to make that clear to them. He's trying to change, he's trying to renew their mind and change their thinking. Because in Luke's account and some of the other accounts, they came and then asked him, teach us how to pray. Because they watched his prayer life. And they saw him pray with confidence. So much so that Jesus, most of the time when he prayed, he didn't talk directly to the Father. He spoke for the Father to the situation. And we've talked about this before. And the real key insight is in John chapter 11 when Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus and he says, I know you always hear me when I pray, but this time I'm going to say it, I'm going to talk to you so that they know when this happens that you did this and not me. So many times Jesus just spoke to situations. Not always, sometimes he did other things. Sometimes he laid hands, sometimes he ministered in another way. But he spoke with a confidence. They watched him go and spend all night in prayer. Now, you and I would think of that and say, oh my gosh, that would be exhausting to stay all night in prayer because then he went and ministered all day. It's not he went and slept for three days. But if, my goodness, if we were to hold an all-night prayer meeting, we're going to look at this and say, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do that. Jesus didn't see prayer as exhausting. Jesus didn't see prayer as some obligation. Jesus saw prayer as as necessary as breathing. Jesus saw prayer more necessary than eating food and drinking water. Because Jesus understood something and experienced something out of prayer that many times we don't really do in the fullness of it, even if many people don't even do it at all. The life-giving part of the communion with God. Because God is the author of life. You've heard me refer to this before, but in the Old Testament, the great example of this is Moses goes up on the mountain. God calls him on a mountain. And Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights. And during that time, not only does he not eat anything, he doesn't even drink water. Now, you can go for 40 days. You may not want to, but you could go for 40 days without eating food. People have done that. But you cannot go 40 days without drinking some kind of liquid. Your body will dehydrate and will begin to stop functioning. Then how come that didn't happen to Moses? Because Moses was standing in the presence of the source of life himself. I heard a preacher years ago make this statement and it began to change how I saw prayer. He says, you're never stronger than when you're on your knees in prayer. You're never stronger than when you're in communion with the source of life himself. Say, but that's not my experience so often when I pray. And that's because that's a sign that most likely we're praying more out of our mind than we are out of our spirit or our heart. 
And the battle is in order to get to that place, we have to get through our flesh and we have to get around our mind. And it's so easy to get discouraged because I don't get anything out of it. I mean, if, if people received out of time of prayer and communion with their father what, what, what is possible, then this place would be packed on Tuesday nights. It would be more packed than it is on Sundays and Wednesday nights because that would be the time when we're not just sitting listening, we're not just singing, we're actually together in communion with the God of life and the God of love which means we're not experiencing what God has intended for us. And it's not because there's something wrong with us. It's not because we're stupid or dull or backslidden. It's because we haven't tasted of it. And boy, once you get a taste of it, you want more. And that's the living water that Jesus talked to the woman at the well about. And if we'll do that, then we'll begin to see the rivers of living water that Jesus talks about in John chapter 7. So let's look at what he's talking about because the key here is knowing who it is you're talking to. And to know who it is you're talking to, we've got to know something about him and he reveals things about himself. Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Coming to our Father and knowing something about him. In fact, it's begun to change my understanding of what faith is and where faith comes from. Because I went to a faith school. Pastor, Pastor Ray went to a faith school. I think Monica's here. She went to the same school. Others here have gone to the same school. Uh, my wife went to the same school. I went and sat right next to her. That's right. Well, we heard what faith is, and faith comes by hearing and hearing. And that's all, that's all true. But I think what we've done with that sometimes, sometimes is we've, we've disconnected faith from the one we have faith in. Because if you think about your relationships with people, the people you trust, the reason you trust them is because you know them. It's impossible to just be told, have trust. Have faith. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith. Faith in someone is simply saying, I trust them enough to take them at their word. In order to do that, I've got to get to know them so that I know whether I can trust them. That's one thing with somebody that you can see, so that when you're talking to them, when they're telling you, you know, when Denny says, you know, look, I'll be there Saturday morning for you, I can look in his eyes, I can hear the tone of his voice. So if he's telling me, Pastor John, I'll be there on Saturday morning, and while he's telling me this, he's kind of looking around at other people, and his voice sort of trails off, and uh, Denny, uh, oh yeah, 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 I'll be there. That, that nonverbal language gives me some clues whether I really have his attention and whether I can really trust what he's saying to me. So we, when we're ta- someone's talking to you and, and you've asked them a question, you really, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to that doctor and you say, doctor, what is this? You know, you're looking at whether they're paying attention to you or if they kind of, their eyes are kind of looking around the room, you know, you don't have a lot of confidence in what they're saying or, or like this. Maybe this is my legal training. When somebody tells me something, especially like a doctor or something, and then later on I ask them the same question, I remember what they told me the first time, and if they give me a different answer the second time, thy trust level just went down. 
because either they don't know what they're talking about or they forgot what they told me, which means they weren't that serious about it when they told me. I listen, especially if it's something important. I listen to what people tell me, and I log that in there to find out, did they do what they said they were going to do? Because I'm trying to decide whether I can trust them or not. And we do that with people, whether we're conscious of that. I'm aware people come here and they have to decide, do I trust this pastor or not? I understand that. Don't just trust me because I'm here. That trust needs to be earned. It needs to be earned by not just seeing that I do what I say, but how I live my life, and I'm far from perfect. And anybody, you've got to learn to trust them, and that takes time, and that takes an experience. Well, if that's true with people that you can see, how much more does that need to be true with a God you can't see? So, yeah, but he's, he can't lie. I know that. But the wonderful thing about God, let's, let's take a look at this. This thing shuts down. Let's see what it says here. Because this is so, there's something in my heart to get across to you. And let's see. Verse 7. And when you pray. By the way, let me, just a little side note here. If, you, if you're struggling with your prayer life, here's the answer to that. Pray more. The very opposite of what you feel. You get up in the morning and say, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'll do it tomorrow. If you wait to do it tomorrow, you'll be less inclined to do it tomorrow. And the next thing, instead of being, you're missing a day, you'll miss a week. And the next thing you know, you'll be weak. Because you get out of the habit of it. I just have built a habit in my life. And the good thing about a habit is when it's a habit, you do it whether you think about it or not. I get up in the morning, I get the cup of coffee, that's a habit, right? And I go out, especially in this weather, and I sit on my back deck with my Bible, and I read my Bible, and then I go downstairs for my place of prayer, and I spend time in prayer. But I've learned this now. When I leave that place of prayer, I don't want to stop praying. It's not my attitude, well, I prayed. Now, God, thank you, we had a wonderful time here, and I'm going to go about my business now. I need him all day. So I talk to him all day. I'm going to go into a meeting. I talked to them before I go into the meeting. I had a bunch of things today every, before I went, did everything I did today. Even though I had already talked to them about it beforehand, I talked to them about I'll talk to them in the middle of it. Not out loud. I'm just listening inside. I'm learning to commune with him throughout the whole day, which makes... I remember hearing Smith Wigglesworth, I read somewhere, he says, I don't pray more than 15 minutes at a time, but I never go more than 15 minutes without praying. So he was in communion with the Father... On a, on a not just a regular basis, all the time. I'll never forget. I was sitting somewhere back there 20-some years ago when a st- stubborn Texan standing up here, probably on a Wednesday night, just off the top of his head, happened to say, when you go through a day without prayer, that what you're saying is, I don't need God that day. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. So when you're struggling with your prayer time, the only answer is to pray more. Because if you quit, then the devil wins. Because the one thing he's scared of is for you to get on your knees and begin to talk to your Father who's in heaven. He's scared to death that you're going to enter into communion with your Father in heaven, that you're going to hear from him and know what to do, because when that power begins to come into your life, he no longer has power over you. 
this is vital to a Christian. This is why so many Christians struggle, why so many Christians are defeated, because they've not developed a consistent prayer life, and as a result, they have no confidence when they pray. And you've got to understand, our flesh is working just the opposite, because we're led by how we feel and what seems to be working. So if it doesn't feel like it's working, if we're not comfortable, we'll put it off, and that's, that's exactly why it's not working well. And it's, it's something you learn to do by doing. It's kind of like the first time you, as a child, you know, I don't know what you were like when they tried to teach you how to ride a bicycle, if you have learned how to ride. You know, you put you on the bicycle and you, my father did this and I was going all over the place. Or like a child when they begin to walk. You ever notice a baby when they begin to walk? They almost never do it right the first time. They fall down and they, they, have, they bump their knee or something like that. And, and what, they don't just sit there and quit, do they? They're going to get back up and try again and try again and try again because there's something in them that's compelling them to learn to walk. And the Spirit of God inside of you is trying to prompt you to learn to pray, to learn to pray, effectual, fervent prayer. But one of the keys is this, because when we're in that mode, we're usually praying because we should. We're praying because we're supposed to. We're praying because it's an obligation, because we feel guilty if we don't. We're praying because there's some need, and I ought to be praying for that situation. I got this situation in my life that needs prayer. We're praying because we should, and that's kind of as if I take my wife out on a date because I'm obligated to. I say, well, it's Friday night. I'm supposed to take you out on a date. So where do you want to go? She, she, can, she can tell by just the look in my eyes and the tone of my voice whether I'm doing this because I want to or I'm doing it because I feel like I have to. And if I'm doing it because I have to, we're not going to get anything out of this. And that's kind of what your time with God's like. It's kind of like a date. It's, it's a relationship. Everything... God does with us is out of relationship. The reason he sent Jesus to the cross for you and for me so that he could pay for your sins legally, so that he could legally give you his righteousness, so that he could legally put his spirit inside of you, so that he could legally make you his child. And what is a child? A child's in relationship with their parents. And everything God does for you, everything God does with you, God's motivated by a desire to have a living, vital relationship with you. And so Jesus says, verse 7, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. We talked about this before. Their trust and confidence was in how they were praying and what they were praying. Listen carefully. They did not have confidence in who they were praying to. Jesus says, the, the, the heathen, the Gentiles, some translations will say, those are people that have no covenant relationship with God. To them, he's creator. To them, he's all-powerful. To them, he's to be feared. To them, he is the almighty God. But he's not a God that has entered into a relationship with them. But in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God came to Abraham 
Abram at the time. We studied this years ago. We studied blood covenant. God came to Abram in Genesis 12 and began to reveal to him, I am the God that created you and I want to enter into a covenant with you. A covenant is a relationship. 47 years ago in July, my wife and I entered into a covenant relationship of marriage. And that covenant is what binds us together. And there were times that's all that bounded us to get bound us together. It wasn't that we were just feeling so much love for each other. At least, well, I won't go into that. It was years ago, but I mean, it was a commitment that bound us together. Because my parents were divorced. We weren't saved. I was determined we were not going to get divorced. Come, pardon the expression, hell or high water, and they both came. One option, murder was something we might consider, and I'm sure she has. But divorce, no. And that commitment is what covenant is. And the difference is, with a holy covenant before God, God's the one that binds that together. And we've developed a practice. I'm not telling you you need to do this. We now share communion every morning. And we renew that covenant that we have with God and we renew that covenant that we have with each other. And we declare that because of that covenant, God's the strength of that covenant relationship. And because of that, no man can come between us, no demon can come between us, and no issue can come between us. And we declare that every day before God, not just for each other, but of our family's relationship with God. And it is really affecting things in a, in a, in a positive way. You just do choose to do what you want to do with that. I'm not telling you the Bible says you have to do that. I'm just saying we've chosen to do that. And oh, what a difference it has made. But the point is this. It's a relationship. It's a relationship that's based on confidence. It's a relationship that's based on a security that just because she gets mad at me about something or I get mad at her about something, which rarely happens. It's not going to pack up my bags and move out. She's not going to get out, you know, the, the pistol and shoot me if she wants to. I mean, we'll work it through. And that happens. I mean, we're still human. And we, but we've committed to work it through. But this relationship isn't stronger than this. So God's made a commitment to you, a relationship, and He sealed it with the blood of His Son. And He did it before you and I were born. And Romans 5, and we may get into that, Romans 5 said He demonstrated this relationship. He demonstrated His Father's love. He demonstrated what, what He wants to be in your life. In that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of His, He sent His Son to die in our place. He demonstrated. He proved His love when He wasn't obligated to do anything. Why? So that we would have confidence to enter into this relationship. Well, we've done that. We've come to Christ. We've received Christ. But we're not walking in the enjoyment of that relationship, which is the communion of it. It's like being married and never talking to each other. You know, get up in the morning and... Unfortunately, too many couples do this. They wake up in the morning, they go through their routines, they have their breakfast, you know, they may say something, but it's information they're passing back and forth. 
Not an expression of the relationship. Not an expression of love. Not a listen to each other. And that communication is what makes relationships alive and makes them grow. But that's not just true this way. It's especially true this way. And so Jesus is telling us the secret of his prayer life is who he's praying to, who he's talking to. He's talking to his Father. He's talking to his Father. Now, the wonderful thing about God, one of the wonderful things about God, is that, let's talk for a moment, we may not finish this tonight, about what it means that he's our Father. And this is where we can struggle, and I've struggled with this in the past, because I did not have a Father that I could talk to openly. I did not have a father that I could just go to and, and know that whatever I asked him and talked to him, that he was going to listen to me and love me back. I never knew what he was going to do. So I was always very guarded. How, but, but, so I used to see that as such an impediment that, that, oh my goodness, I can't ever overcome that until I realized, wait a minute, God has to have made provision for me. You know, there are other people that have had much more difficult childhood and they've developed a close relationship with God. So that's just an excuse especially when I realize he's given me in his word, he reveals who he is. So I want to just share some things about what, we'll just let the Spirit of God show us what God's trying to show us about himself, what it means that he's our father. So first of all, we see in verse 7 that we're not, our relationship with God is not like those that have no covenant with him. We have a covenant relationship with him. Verse 8, Therefore, because of this, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Now let's just meditate together a little bit on what Jesus is telling us about His Father. If he knows what we need before we ask him, he must be paying attention to us. So when we go to talk to him, we don't have to jump up and down, yell and scream and throw things in the air, make a fuss to get his attention. He's always got his eyes on us. He's always got... His ears open to us. We're not going to take the time tonight, but if you just go through Psalm 139 and just slowly go through that and meditate on it and begin to digest what God is saying to us about Himself. He watched you formed in your mother's womb. He watched over that. He watched those first two cells. He watched that first cell divide. And he watched them divide again. And he watched them divide again. I mean, nowadays we have this wonderful technology where they can, you know, where they can, you know, look and watch the baby inside, you know. God's watching infinitely the cells. He watched over you being formed in your mother's womb. Wow. Wow. Do you know that he ordained your life before the foundation of the world? Ephesians chapter 1. He planned ahead of time for the time you would come to Christ and you would be in a relationship with Him. He looked forward to that. 
You know, the Word of God says that when you finally came to Christ, they threw a celebration in heaven over just you. Just you. Just who you are. A father, a good father, knows his children. In Proverbs where it says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they'll not depart from it. The word train up means to know the bent of your child. We have four children, and they each have a different bent to them. Two of them are identical twins, and they look alike. I mean, they try not to look alike, but they still do look alike. They look alike. They still talk alike. They walk alike. They dress alike in each other's clothes. Not at the same time. And, and, but there's a difference between them. There's a difference in their personality. And those of you that may not know them well, you wouldn't see that. But as the parents, we know those subtle differences in their personality. Why? We watched over them as they grew up. We watched them relate a little differently to other things as people. We watched them learn how to, how to play a little differently. We watched them interact with each other. We watched our older children interact with the younger children. We watched all of those. And even as a, as a brand, new chi- brand new parent, those of you that have been a parent, you begin to recognize the cry of your child. And I've shared with you before, and those of you, that, again, that are parents, especially mothers, you know your child's cry. You know your child's cry. And I've, I've told you before, I remember it was, a, I think it was a Wednesday night, and I was the associate pastor at the time, and I was preaching, and our, our granddaughter, who's now 11, she was in the nursery over there, and they opened the door, and they must have opened the door to the nursery, and I heard a cry in there, and I knew that was her cry, and the moment I heard cry, I wasn't a pastor, I was a grandfather, for just a moment. Why? Because a parent watches that child listens to that child, knows that child's bents and knows that child's quirks and knows their strengths and knows their weaknesses. Why? First first of all, because they love them. And because they love them, they're watching them, they're playing with them. Even the way God designed a child to grow up. You ever wonder why it was God's plan this so that you've got to carry that child for nine months, ladies? because I know the last month or so, you wish it were six months. (laughs) But God ordained nine months because by the time you've carried that child, that child's a part of you. You've got an anticipation to see this child. Now, nowadays, you know, you can know ahead of time what that sex is before they come, but you still don't know what they look like because those pictures are still blurry. You still don't know much about them and you anticipate them. And when they're born, they come out and you begin to carry them around. And if you're nursing them, you carry them in arms, whatever. When you feed them, you're holding them. When you're doing that, you're looking in their eyes and, you know, and you're, you're communicating back and forth with this little child who doesn't know anything at all. And you're communicating, you're communing with this child. You're getting to know that child. And that child's getting to know your voice and mothers even while they're in your womb they're beginning to hear they can sense your voice and the vibration patterns and you're getting to know this child because you care about it because it's precious in your arms why do we think God's different? why do we think God's different? that when you're born again that word born again in the Greek, also means born from above. When you're born into God's family, why, why would we think 
God loves any less? Why would we think God's not watching over us even more? Because you look at that child and you don't know what's going on inside that little brain except that I'm hungry or I need my pants changed. You're trying to figure out what's this cry mean. God knows perfectly every thought you have. He knows what you need before you come and ask him. Wow. This is the one I'm coming to and I don't know whether he's going to answer me or not. When he's been watching over me, every thought. Now, some people, that scares that God knows every thought. To me, it's comforting. That means I can't fool him. That means he knows me. Oh, by the way, he knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows you on your best day, and on your best day, it is so far below him, you're not even on the radar screen, but he's proud of you on your best day. He knows you on your worst day. He knows your best possible thoughts when your just head is up. Oh God, I can't wait to come to church and worship you. I've been so good today. And he knows the times when you drag in here and you feel like you don't even belong coming in the parking lot. And he loves you equally on the good day and on the bad day. I remember so clearly a number of years ago, right over here before I was going to, on a Wednesday, in here right before service, and I had a very busy day kind of like today, and it's like I just didn't have the time to prepare, and I just I didn't, you know, I just wasn't feeling very confident, and I was just apologizing. God, I'm sorry, you know, I was busy, and I didn't pay the attention to you, and I didn't get to pray as much as I could. You know, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm qualified to get up there. And I heard so clearly, you're never qualified to get up there. What makes you think on your best day you're any better than you are today? And I really broke, (laughs) it broke something in me. God's your Father. And again, for some of us, that can be a challenge, but you've got to get into the Word of God and begin to renew your mind. I just took one verse. And we've just meditated on that verse just a little bit. And, and I would encourage you to do that. We studied last year or so renewing the mind. And one of the things I'm seeing that's so important is instead of taking lots of verses and reading them, take one or two verses and just read them over and over and over again. Something like this that begins to touch your heart, that may well be the Spirit of God directing you there because there's some jewel that's hidden in there that He wants to show you about your Father that's in heaven. See, the Spirit of God is in you to introduce you to your Father. He's in you, in part, to introduce your Father to you so that you would know Him and trust Him. So that when you come to Him, you have absolute confidence that He's listening to you, that He hears you. Don't you know that your Father knows what you need before you pray? It's before you ask. He already knows it. We talked before about, well, if he already knows it, why, why do I need him to ask? Well, ladies, let me ask you this question, you that are married. Most of you probably knew your husband was going to propose, but you still want him to ask, didn't you? It wasn't enough just to assume. 
well, I know he knows I love him and he loves me and I know we're going to get married, so let's just plan. But you wanted him, is that right, ladies? I know my wife. She went to ask. I want you to ask. Why? Because it stirs a desire. It stirs, it also makes clear to us that he's the one that answered it and that we didn't somehow work this out or, or it wasn't just luck that this happened. Don't you know your father knows? Don't you? It's like Jesus is almost surprised that they haven't realized this. Don't you know? Don't you know? I mean, after what you've seen of me, don't you know your father? Your father. Your father. God's your father. God's your father. Now, in our lives... Some children are born intentionally because the parents wanted them and some that weren't planned for. But in God's family, all of you were planned for. In God's family, all of us were wanted. In God's family, all of us are desired. You are in his family because he chose you. Jesus told his disciples one of the last things he told them. So it must have been important for them to get an understanding. He said, you didn't choose me. John chapter 15. Meditate on this. You didn't choose me. I chose you. None of us are in the kingdom of God because somehow we fooled him. You may have fooled your boss on your resume when he hired you. You may have fooled your spouse. My wife thought I was this great thing from the East, and then she got married to me and found out there were some chinks in the armor, there was some rust, there was no back to the armor. I mean, she discovered there was more to me than what she saw at first, and that was true with most of you, especially if you got married at a young age. But none of us fooled him. In fact, he knows you more than you know yourself. There's an old Gaither song. Well, it's old for, for many of us, but back in the 70s it was popular. And the lyrics are so powerful, and we'll end this, because it really talks about this. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. For the one that lo- knows me best loves me most. You don't fully know yourself and others don't fully know you. But there's one that knows you intimately and completely. And even if you do know yourself fully, you don't know what you're going to be thinking tomorrow. But he knew all of that. When he not just chose you but he chose you to be his child. And he chose to be your father. And from the moment he chose you, he didn't say, well, that's done. I'm going to go on to other things. That was the beginning of his entrance into your life, to be involved in your life. Oh, that we would let him be involved more than we do. Oh, that we would let him into every area, every care, every concern, every emotion. I'm learning to just share my emotions with him. I don't know what to do here, God. So I just talk to him about it. 
I'm frustrated about this. Talk to him about it. Talk to him about what you're going through. Talk to him about how you feel. Talk to him about what you think. Talk to him about it. And he'll begin to talk back to you. Don't you know that your father, that your father that's in heaven, already knows what you need before you ask? And then Jesus goes on to say, and this is how you're to pray. Our Father, who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, what we've heard tonight and what we've read tonight, we can leave here saying, yes, I know that. I know God's my Father. But I sense in my spirit there's a depth to that relationship. There's a depth to that name. There's a a depth to what you want us to taste of what it means that you're our Father and that you're watching over us. That's not something that can be done with our mind that requires a revelation of your Holy Spirit. And I go back, Father, to what I go back to so often here to this body and in my own life. That your word tells us that there are things which our eyes have not seen, which our ears have not heard, which have not yet entered into our heart. All that you have prepared for those who love you, but your spirit's been given to us to search the depths of your heart and reveal them to you. I must believe that if there's anything that you want us to know about you, it's how much you love us as our Father. And so my prayer tonight is that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see your fatherhood in our lives, and that we would learn that when we come to you, whether it's in praise whether it's in worship, whether it's in frustration, whether it's in anger, whether it's in disappointment, whether it's in crying out for need, whatever it is, who it is that we're coming to and how much you want to answer us by your Spirit, our God. In Jesus' name, amen.